seat, and if you have your Bible, you can grab it and pull it out. We're going to be using it uh, every week, to, but uh, especially this week. Um, so we've dove into this new series that uh, we've titled Hope and Glory. It's an explore, exploration, of, if you will, of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we like to teach this way. We really like to explore Scripture. Our heartbeat is that you would become a lover of God's Word if you're not already. Like, that's the movement that we have and the desire that we have, is that you would have these incredible kind of encounters with God's Word that would draw you back into His Word, that would, that would recall things as you walk through daily life, that would draw you back to things you've learned, you've heard. It would develop as a love affair with Scripture, right? And so as, as a church and as preachers, our entire heartbeat is just that you fall in love with God's Word. So our number one goal is not really to entertain you or to even make you want to come back or not put you to sleep. It's really just to help create this passion for God's Word that is living and active, right? I mean, Scripture itself calls itself the breath of God, the theopunestos, the very breath of God. And we want you to love it and have an encounter with it. And so we love to teach kind of expire expositorily through scripture to unpack line by line or idea by idea, sometimes word by word to explore the sort of redemptive nature of God's extravagant glory as laid out in the fullness of scripture, Old and New Testament. And so we've done that quite a bit. We've explored a lot of books together. We spent several years going through the Gospel of John. We've done the same thing through Acts. Um, this past season, as I mentioned, has led us to this weirder place where a lot of our teaching was done in little, we alternated over the weeks, Brandon and I in the summer, and, and we're falling back into a normal rhythm. But our, our teaching was really built around just sort of some expressions that God was teaching our individual hearts. And then we'd share them on Sundays, kind of not knowing if that Sunday we'd be meeting or be in the park or any of those kind of things. But as we're settling into rhythms, we wanted to really dive back into this way of really exploring Scripture together. And Hebrews seemed like the right book to do that with because it's written to a group of people that are facing some pretty difficult things in life. Life is not easy. As a Hebrew Christian, as a Jewish Christian, your life was probably the most persecuted picture of all Christian lives. Now, Christians were persecuted in the first century. We know that. But as a Jewish Christian, not only were you persecuted for your beliefs in Christ, but you were ostracized by your family because you were blasphemous. You had given up um, and you had put your faith into this person named Jesus, you are claiming that he's God, which makes you a blasphemer, kind of pushed out by your family and rejected by the community. And life was a different set of challenges. And there was a lot of pressure. As we'll see today, there was a lot of pressure to return to that older way of life, a way of life that said maybe Jesus isn't really all of that. Maybe the law and um, God's promise is yet to be fully fulfilled, and I need to return to that. And we'll see that a little bit played out today. Um, but it was an interesting time, and so our, our author, the writer of Hebrews, writes this book to remind his hearers, mainly Hebrew Christians, that not only is Jesus enough, but that he is better, that he's entirely sufficient and incredibly supreme. And if we had to wrap the whole kind of lineage of the book of Hebrews up in a couple of statements, it would be the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Like the entire letter is really, or book is really written in that manner. So last week I went through this kind of big overview of, of Hebrews. I'm going to do it briefly today because we just started last week. I won't do it each week, but I'll touch on these bigger themes for those of you that maybe just joined us. And it'll kind of be the last time we really do that. But just as a reminder of what we're stepping into as a book. Because it's not really a book in the sense that the other books are books or letters, right? A lot of the other New Testament letters or even Old Testament books were written down as such. 
Um, a lot of them. Some of the Psalms are poetry, of course, but a lot of the New Testament letters in particular and the others were written down on scrolls or were written down on books and they were, uh, they were passed out on parchments and they were delivered to towns and they were meant to be letters, right? And they were written in that form. The Pauline epistles, for example, are written as a letter that was to be shared. Well, Hebrews is not really written that way. It's written more as this sort of sermon. That's the best way to kind of look at it. It's not written like a letter. It's written like a uh, kind of an, something that was, that was taught orally. It's one giant piece of teaching. And it's got to be understood that way, that it wasn't necessarily meant to be digested in sections, but instead as a whole. And so it's challenging each week to look at a portion of something that was meant to be heard in its totality. And so we've got to keep a bigger picture always in mind. But we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. Um, there's a lot of speculation over the years, uh, actually from 400 AD to about 1600 AD, that it was written by Paul. In fact, a lot of places it was called, you can see in history, it was called the Pauline Epistle to the Hebrews. And so we learn pretty quickly on after about 1600, when you start doing a lot of research and you look at the letter really closely, that you can't really apply it to Paul. It's not really his style, his theme. And in chapter 2, verse 3, there's a mention of some, the, the author or the speaker hasn't had the revelation or the encounter with Christ that Paul would have had. Paul, of course, on the road to Damascus has this incredible experience with Jesus, and then he subsequently goes off into the wilderness and it just gets all this revelation by the Holy Spirit. Well, kind of makes it clear in Hebrews that whoever wrote this didn't have that kind of experience. So there are really two main people that scholarship has since said probably wrote it. The first was Barnabas, who was a friend of Paul's, partner on the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. We all may remember the name Barnabas. Um, a lot of people believed it was Barnabas. Another group believes it was Apollos. And Apollos was suggested by Martin Luther right around the time of the Reformation. And Apollos was an Alexandrian Jew. He was incredibly educated. And he was an incredibly eloquent speaker. We know all this from the book of 1 Corinthians. We know that he had a relationship with Paul uh, from the church in Corinth. Most scholarship thinks or kind of believes that maybe it was Apollos, but we don't really know. Um, but those are two really important people. They had a lot of apostolic authorship and authority, and so uh, all kind of evidence is leaned to one of those two gentlemen. Uh, for our purposes, though, it doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's one of those people, but it was written as this sermon. And Apollos seems to be the clear kind of leader because he was such a prolific speaker. Paul himself even makes reference to how what a great order um, Apollos was. And so um, most likely that's where it falls, but it's important just to know, but for our purposes, does it make a, a ton of difference? It was written before AD 70. We know it was written before the fall of uh, the temple in Jerusalem because it references daily life in the temple and talks about what that looks like. And if it was happening after AD 70, then we'd know that the temple was ransacked by the Romans and it would probably make mention of it in the letter. But um, so it was written about that time period and it was written, as I mentioned, to a very specific group of believers, these Jewish Christians. Now, at the first century, right, you got to understand that most believers were Jewish until the missionary journey started unfolding. So we talk about this group of Jewish Christians. We're not looking expressly at this sort of mixed group like a lot of the Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthian letters were written to because this letter was written to a group of people that most likely were predominantly just Hebrew Christians without a lot of Greek influences or meetings. And they were facing a very specific set of issues. 
That is the fact that when you put your faith in Christ as a Jewish person, you are proclaiming that Christ is, in fact, as we will see today, God. And therefore, you have two options. One, you're right. Or two, you're a blasphemer and you're ostracized from the community. And the Old Testament talks about you being punishable by death if you put your faith in this other God that is actually not God. And so they were facing an immense set of pressures from the entire community to basically do one of two things. One, to completely return to Judaism, to just give that up, go back to the law. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. Go back to the law and just return to the old way of life, be welcomed into the community again and give up this sort of nonsense uh, of Jesus, this rabbi who now we're proclaiming is God. Um, Or they face a lot of pressure to Judaize the gospel, which is essentially to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we see kind of played out in some of Paul's letters to the Galatians and things that he kind of writes against, and take all the Jewish law and emphasis and apply it to the gospel. Meaning that not only is To be saved, you have to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you have to wholly and perfectly keep the law. So it's Jesus plus the fullness of the Mosaic law, meaning that you can't be saved by faith alone in Christ, but you need to keep the law, circumcision, all these kind of pieces. It's why Paul writes the majority of those little short letters to the churches out there in the sort of Greek outlying lands because the Jewish people were coming in or Jewish Christians were coming in and saying, yes, you can be saved, but you also have to be a Jew. And so they were basically Judaizing the gospel, if you will. And both of those things, of course, wrong. And so our author is writing with a specific purpose to say, don't look back, right? Christ is better. He is enough and he is supreme and all things hold together through him. And this entire sermon or, or book that we have is written to combat those singular things, to basically make this long argument of why Jesus is better. And last week he opens up in this sort of great way by saying essentially this, in the past, God has spoken to us through the prophets in various forms and various ways. But now he has spoken to us directly through the Son, through Jesus. And then he lists seven attributes of why Jesus is amazing. And we went through all of them last week kind of in a brief way, but they're everything from they were uh, Jesus is the heir to the throne of God, that he is creator, that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, that he purifies us from our sins. And then he gets to the last one, and he kind of ends it, and we're going to pick up on that one this morning. And the last attribute of Christ that he basically says is that Jesus is better than the angels. And he kind of leaves it hanging there. And so we're going to pick up this morning on the tail end of that seventh attribute. And our author, it's kind of a big deal to him. He's going to spend 12 verses explaining just why Jesus is better and bigger and different and more important than the heavenly hosts and the angels. And he's going to unpack that for us. And we're going to learn a couple of things that we already knew about Jesus, but we're going to set them as anchors for our path moving forward. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Um, And we're going to explore those verses together. But before we do that, let's take a moment and let's just pray. Lord, all those words that I have to just simply say, you're awesome. You are amazing. And we love your word. And God, it is living and it is um, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Lord, you tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is your word. And we deeply believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. That scripture is authoritative. 
And it is all that we need for life, faith, and practice. And so, Lord, as we unpack it, we do not hold it as a guide that we're called to line our lives up with. We call it as the very source of love that you have poured out to us of the redemptive picture of Christ. And therefore, it is totally sufficient for our life. It is authoritative, and it is the baseline upon which we base all things, even if those things are challenging. And so this morning, as we unpack Hebrews, Lord, we take that same attitude towards this letter, that we are going to have an encounter with you in your word. Take a moment in your heart and just ask the Lord to just prepare you, just to teach you something a little bit fresh or new or alive this morning. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking or life-altering, just that God would freshen your heart with his word. Just pray that God would teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. We do this every week. Pray for someone in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would move in their life. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be a prayer for people. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach our hearts and our souls. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So one through four, right? This is how God used to talk to us. He used to teach us through the prophets in various ways as messengers. But now, in our time, he has given us direct teaching through his son. That Jesus, he is teaching us through Jesus. And he gives seven of these attributes of how great Christ is and why Jesus is sufficient and why he is supreme. Now, if you haven't heard those and you're interested in them, we've got a couple of ways you can go back and listen. One, if you go to the website, you could podcast this. We have a little section or teaching, and you can get it on whatever phone or device you have. But we also started recording our services to be beneficial to those that have stayed home with COVID or just doesn't fit into their new routine or whatever. We're not sure how long we're going to keep it up, but it's up and going. And if you want to visit our website under uh, worship and Bible study, you'll see last week's full service with music and, and all and all of its various forms and glory. And you can listen to, um, to that and we'll, that kind of explore those seven attributes. But he ends on this last one in verse 4 where he says this. He essentially says that, um, he goes, so, you, so Christ became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So he became more superior to the angels because the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So he, he inched verse 4 by taking us deeper into this seventh revelation, which is Christ is bigger than the angels because he's been given a better and more excellent name. So let's keep going. We'll read this and then we'll go back and unpack it. And then again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, verse 6, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. By anointing you with the oil of joy, he also says in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens, and the work the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you will remain the same, and your years will never end. To which the angels did God, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? So all that to say, he takes that seventh attribute, which is he, Jesus has been given a different name, a better name, and he's bigger than the angels. And then he explains through seven Old Testament verses. Everything from Psalms 27 running down through Psalms 102, which is about a God the creator through Samuel. He takes seven different Old Testament texts and he applies them to show just why Christ is better. So rather than spending our time going through all seven of those, which we would probably do, which would probably take seven mornings, I think there's three bigger things here, some of which we saw last week that are going to be applied to this week that our, our author's trying to get us to understand. And why the whole angel thing is important that he spends 12 verses on it, we have to understand the bigger context of what's unfolding in this sermon, right? We can't just take it week by week. So here's what the bigger context is. Is that because of the pressure that these Jewish Christians were facing to return to Judaism, to go back to the old way of life, right? They were facing a ton of pressure by their family and by their community to say, look, return. Why would you need anything more than the law? The law is perfect. It was given to us by Moses. And Jewish tradition held that the law was given to Moses by the angels. They were the heavenly beings that then used, were used as messengers by God to hand the law to Moses according to Jewish tradition. And Moses gave the law to the people. And the law was, in fact, perfect. That's the Jewish held belief. And to put your hope and faith in this Jesus was blasphemous. It was punishable by death and removal from the community. He was, after all, was just a rabbi. <clears throat> and if the angels gave the law to Moses, then what could be greater <clears throat> excuse me, than that? And so our author begins to unpack these things to say, let me show you just why Jesus is better than the heavenly host, better than the angels that gave the law to Moses according to tradition. And he gives us three things. And the first one that he says is that they've been given, or Jesus, excuse me, has been given a more excellent name. And he says that in verse 4. We wrapped it up last week. That the Son has been given a better or more superior name to the, than the angels. And then he unpacks it in verse 5 to what that name is. And the name is not Jesus Christ, right? The name is actually Son of God. For which of the angels, in verse 5, did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. So the name that is given to the son, that is never given to the angels, is son of God. Now this is incredibly important because if you look back to verse 3 where we were last week, we have one of the incredible hinge verses in the whole book. The whole sermon, the whole letter, whatever you're looking at there, we have this incredible hinge verse that basically says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. That the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation 
of his being. So if God himself is saying that the Son, right, that Jesus has been given the name the Son, which is the name that is far superior to the angels, here is why. Because the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the reason the name the Son of God is so much, so much better and superior to the angels is because what it brings about. Because to be the Son means that you're the radiance of God's glory. And we talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about the idea when you stare into a bright light, you can't distinguish the brightness from the light because they're so deeply connected. And to take it one step further, that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of the Father. Meaning that to look at Jesus is to look in the mirror and you see God. The angels were never given that name because that wasn't who they were. It wasn't the purpose. They were not God. But Jesus was given the name, the Son of God, which is more superior than every name. And it has this foreshadowing that rolls into Philippians. You remember the book of Philippians where it talks about that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The name Jesus, Son of God, carries with it the very connotation that the Son is a representation of the Father which means that Jesus is not a traveling rabbi. He's not a great moral teacher. He's not someone that we should just put our kind of good teaching on, and I really like him as a teacher, but all that other Christian stuff I'm not sure what to do with. No, to look at Jesus is to look at God. He is the exact representation of his being and the radiance or the beauty of his glory. Which means that everything that we see in Scripture that Jesus does, from the healing of the blind, deaf guy, to hanging out with sinners and prostitutes, to spending time with the outcasts, to feeding 5,000, to arguing with the Pharisees, to dying on the cross, is the expression of God's incredible extravagant love because Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. So the first thing our author, our speaker, sets us up for is that Jesus is better than the angels that gave the law according to tradition to Moses because he's been given a different name. He's been given the name, the Son of God, and he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And he goes, and if that's not enough, let me show you another reason why he's better and bigger than the angels. And he goes on in verse 6 and says this, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds, his servants flames of fire. So he says this, even the angels worship the Son. So we know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's been given the most excellent and superior name. And we also learn that even the angels worship Jesus. Now, he gives us two great Old Testament stories or verses to apply to that. But if you think even in terms of Christ's birth, and you think to the book of Matthew or the book of Luke, and we talk about how the sort of announcement of the birth of Christ happens in the middle of the Middle Eastern night sky to a bunch of shepherd boys, angels break forth. And this heavenly cry, right, they proclaim the coming of God's Son, that they are worshipers of Jesus. Now, worshiping Jesus is incredibly important. We cannot understate that because worshiping Jesus is what separates Christianity from Judaism on this side, Islam on this side. It's what separates Christianity from emperor worship, which was what was happening in Rome where they believed the emperor was a god. 
It's what separates Christianity from even cults today, like the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe that Jesus is actually an archangel. All of those religions, pieces, basically say Jesus is not to be worshipped. Which, of course, is totally understandable unless the Son is God. And if the Son is God, then the Son is to be worshipped. And what Hebrews sets up is he says, even the angels worship God, the Son of God. And so the angels break forth in Luke, and then we see in 2 Samuel, and we see in Psalm 102 right there, that the angels break forth to the worship of God the Son. And then he sets up the role of those angels by saying simply this. He gives this one little quote, which comes from Psalm 104, and it says this. In speaking of the angels, he makes the angels winds and his servants flames of fire. In Psalm 104, there's a reference there where God talks about the idea that the storm winds are his messengers, his servants. And that the flames of fire, which is lightning, um, is his. And he's talking to that psalm about how even nature is set up to be subservient to who God is as creator. That the winds are his messengers, and the flames of fire are as well. And he says, this is the role, essentially, of the angels. Like the winds and the lightning, they are messengers of who God is. Meaning, they point to God's glory, but they, in fact, are not God. The winds, nature, lightning, that all of creation is not God to be worshipped, but it points us to an incredible creator God. Right? We don't worship nature. We can be in awe of nature because it points us to a creator that made it. But we don't worship the mountains. We don't worship the sun. We worship the one who created those things. And he says this becomes the role of the angels. They are like the winds, like the lightning. They are messengers and representations of God's glory and exist to point us to who he is. In other words, nature is evidence of God's creation and creator skill set. And they're not to be worshipped. All of creation worships God. The very breath of creation worships God. So look what he says. So this is the angels, right? Even they worship. But then he goes on to say this. He says, but about the Son, your throne, O God, will be forever and ever. Your righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. So he says, the angels exist to point us to God's glory, like the winds and the lightning. But the sun, the sun exists as God on the throne and has been set above the companions by anointing them with the oil of joy. So he, he sets apart that relationship of the angelic and of the son. So Jesus has been given a more superior and incredible name. And that name is not Jesus Christ. That name is son of God. And that son of God name carries with it a very specific connotation, which is you are the exact representation of God. In fact, you are God. And that even the angels who are created to point to God's glory worship you, Jesus, because you are, which is the third point that we're going to get to, in fact, God. Jesus is God. 
It's why the psalmist, or why our author can use Psalm 102, which is a psalm that is about creation, God creator. The entire psalm is that way. It's beautiful. And it's why in verse 10 he can apply it to Jesus. And in verse 10 he says this, In the beginning, O Lord, you have laid the foundations of the heavens and of the earth. They are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, and you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you will remain and your years never end. Psalm 102 is a direct psalm about God, the creator, that God made the heavens, that God made the earth, that they will perish, but God never will. In fact, God will roll up the earth like an old garment. That's how perishable it is in the economy of creator God. But that God will never perish and that his kingdom will reign forever. And it's why, the, why our author or our speaker attributes creation to Jesus the Son. Because Jesus is in fact God. And we see that when we go back to verse 2. And in verse 2 we see that all things were made through the Son. That's what we learned last week. But taking that one step further this week, not just through the Son, but that the Son is in fact creator. Meaning that Jesus and the Father are one. And this is why Judaism and Christianity don't mix. And this is why a Jewish person that proclaimed Christ as their Savior would be punishable by death. Because... To worship Jesus is to worship God. And that sets apart Christianity from every other religion, from Islam, from Judaism, from the ancient cults to the modern ones, was the worship of Jesus as God. So here's what our our speaker, our preacher is doing. He's going, look, I know that we all look at these things and we say the angels are amazing. They were used by God to give the law to Moses. They were were the mouthpieces like the prophets. But they were created. And the Son has actually been given a better name. None of the angels were ever called the Son of God. Now you and I can say we're children of God, but not in the same sense that we're talking about Jesus as the Son of God, who is God. The Son of God carries with it the connotation that He is to be worshipped, that all of creation, including created, created beings, worship the Son. Even the angels, who a lot of Judaism believed were here, and the New Testament constantly reminds us that they are here, that we are all worshipers of the one true God. And he's been given the most excellent name, Jesus. And even the angels worship him. And why is he been given that name? And why do the angels worship him? Because he is God. He's been given the name of the Son of God. And the angels worship him because he is God. Creator. Whose kingdom will never fade. The same sentences, the same proclamations in the Psalms that were given to God, Creator, are attributed here to Jesus. Meaning, Jesus is God. And this is what our, our setup is to the entire book. Because next week and the weeks following, we're going to learn that Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the priests. He's a better covenant. He's a better sacrifice. We're going to learn all these things of how Jesus is better. So we have those three pillars that he built this upon, right? The, the name, the Son, 
worshiped by the angels because he is in fact God. And then he tags on this one little piece at the end, which doesn't really fit into the big three, but is a, a great contrast to see that he wants to remind you that he's not talking disparagingly about the angels. He's not looking at the angels saying, oh, look at all they're not. He's basically saying in comparison to all that Christ is. But he doesn't talk about them that way. This is what he says in verse 13. To which of the angels has God, did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all the angels ministering spirits to serve those who will inherit salvation? So he says this, as a reminder of just who Christ is and who the angels are. Did God ever say to any angels, sit at my right hand, I will make the earth your footstool and I'll make the enemies under your feet? Of course not. We learned last week that he will give dominion to Christ over all. That assignment is for the king. And the angels are mere servants. They're like the wind, like the lightning, like the fire. They point to Almighty God, but they're mere servants. But Christ is the king. And the angels have a very specific role. And that very specific role is to minister and to serve to those who will inherit salvation. Do you know who that is? That's you. It's me. It's anyone who puts their faith in Christ. That if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are guaranteed to inherit salvation through the purification of our sins, as we learned last week, and through the new life we have in the resurrected Christ. And the role of the angels is to minister and serve those that are going to inherit salvation. In other words, their role is to bring you home. A lot of times in our theology today, we don't know what to do with the idea of angels. We don't know where they go or where to put them. And from an Eastern culture especially, but also bleeding into the West, we've really dipped deep into angel worship. Ascribing them a place that they don't belong. Not because they're not amazing and creative, but because their role is to bring glory to the Son, to God, and to minister to you, not to be worshipped by you. They are there to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In other words, the angels are part of God's movement and redemptive history to bring you home safely. So what your theology should unpack as is that Creator God, who loved you infinitely so, breathed life into your lungs and then sent his son so that he might die for your sin, to literally become sin so that you might become his righteousness. And that the son was not an angel, never was and never will be. But the son, in fact, is God and was given the name that no angel has ever been given. And he's been given a place that no angel would ever be given that he is to be worshipped because he is in fact God. And that that movement of following Christ is not something we have to blaze through on the, our own, but we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and we have the assistance of these heavenly servants to be used by God for his glory to walk you home. Which means that all of our worship and all of our attention, and all of our focus is on Jesus. And not caught up in the other pieces, but to recognize that God has put his full legions of army together to ensure your salvation, because there is a war that is being waged over your soul. 
And the role of those angels is not superior to Christ ever and never will be. But Jesus is better. And he's going to carry that in the next week. We're going to learn about the law and about Moses and how easy it is to put our hope and our worship into people. But people like the angels, they fall short when it comes to the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. So what I want is you to walk out of here encouraged in these truths. That God loves you and he has a redemptive plan for your life. And that Jesus is to be worshipped because Jesus is God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that God has created this incredible heavenly host that exists for his glory and to minister to you and I as we walk out our salvation, headed for eternal glory. Their role as we worship Christ together is to bring us home. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these moments just to gather and hear and open your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture that is unwavering. We thank you, Lord, for theology because good theology keeps us from bad theology. We thank you, God, that you have set up so perfectly a picture of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And that the Son of God is, in fact, to be worshipped by all creation. And that the Son of God is, in fact, God. And Lord, we recognize that these two pieces of the incredible Trinity, Lord, are not to be separated, but they are all you. And that, Lord, you have given us this incredible picture so that we may remember where our worship rightly should reside. And worship does not reside on created things. We do not worship the mountains or the sun or the ocean or the beautiful scenery. We do not worship angels or people or saints. We worship the one true God alone. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, we worship you. Perfectly one God in three persons who deserves and demands and desires our worship. So hear our cries. We close our time, Lord. You are God. So we close uh, this morning. Let's all.